Welcome to Sound Encounters, the show where I take you on a musical journey as we explore different genres, bands and artists, and new and classic releases. I'm Cesar Torres, and I'll be your guide today. Welcome to the 32nd episode of Sound Encounters. I have a great show for you this week. Later on, I'm going to be talking about Talking Heads and a guide to their eight studio LPs, as well as a little uh, listening order, at least my listening order for the band's music. Now, I usually don't preview what I'm going to talk about on today's show or this week's show, Um, but I wanted to talk about something very serious at the start, and so I wanted to get that little energetic intro out of the way because I wanted to talk about... Sophie, um, and her recent unfortunate passing, because I think that we should talk about an artist as important as her. And, you know, when, when MF Doom passed away, which was not too long ago, at least when we got the news, I felt the need to talk about it because not only was MF Doom important to me, but he was also important to the musical landscape. Um, and, and he made his own style. And I think that it's important to talk about someone like Sophie because she did the same. She transformed music as we know it. And, you know, she's not as important to me as MF Doom was, but I understood what she did because Sophie is a trans artist and when she released it's okay to cry like there's no denying that that had a a huge cultural impact on not only the lgbt community but for for trans people who feel invalidated by the world around them and for someone as fearless as sophie to come out with that message with just her unique personality and her her unique music that meant a lot and I can just imagine, just, I, I, I actually have seen posts on social media mourning her and missing her because she was incredible. I, I said it in, my, in a recent Instagram post that she inspired a generation of artists and producers. And while we lost her so suddenly and at an early age, her legacy will continue to live on in them. And that really is all that matters at the end of the day. She may be gone, but we, the fans, the artists, we will keep her name alive by remembering her in every way that we can and remembering what she did for music and what she did for others. I highly, highly recommend you listen to Oil of Every Pearls on Insides, her debut album from 2018 stream her product project which is also on streaming services stream vroom vroom the ep that charlie xcx released because charlie and sophie worked on that project together let's let's keep her name alive why don't you guys tell me what your favorite sophie project is what your favorite song is from her and what she meant to you my favorite song of hers is probably face shopping uh what a incredible song that just flips pop on its head and pretty much introduced us to hyperpop um, and inspired, you know, 100 Gex, A.G. Cook, Dorian Electra, so many others. 
face shopping is is my favorite uh song although it's it's okay to cry is a second it's a, it's a close second so you know i'll be streaming oil of, of every pearls on insides and remembering her the way that i can please let me know what your favorite sophie song is go to twitter or instagram look up my account post it under the my my recent sophie post my album of the day post um send me a voice message on anchor.fm forward slash sound encounters sound encounters.com uh, or follow the link in the podcast description, send me a voice message, and we can have a little memorial for Sophie, and, and um, we can continue this conversation, we can continue her legacy, because I, I would love to do that. Uh, yeah, it was a pretty heavy start to the podcast, but I needed to talk about that. For those of you who love Sophie, you know, let's 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 express our love for her, and we can talk about her more in later episodes. But for now, as I said, I want to talk about Talking Heads. Before that, we got to talk about this past week in music. All right, so let's start with this new King Gizzard single, O-N-E, or just one, I guess, because uh, it's separated by periods. So I'm guessing it's uh, O-N-E and not one. And God, if there was a song that suffered from the regular King Giz formula, it's this one. Because it was released so close after their last album dropped. And it sounds so similar to a lot of the songs on that album and a lot of previous Giz songs. Um, supposedly, there is another King Gizzard album on the way, uh, a companion album to last year's uh, KG. And this track sounds a lot like the songs that we heard on KG, microtonal guitars, a similar driving rhythm, and Mackenzie's vocals are still the same. They have the same, you know, texture timbre to it. Uh, the only thing that's really different here is a brief guitar solo after the first chorus, but it really is just a bore. Not a big fan of this one. I don't, like, I didn't really like last year's KG, so I'm not sure if I'm going to really like this year's LW, uh, but we'll see. Just not a big fan of this one. Uh, moving on, we got a new Peggy song, Fix Yourself. He's dropping a new EP. Uh, he dropped one last year, and I guess this is a companion EP. Uh, this one has an ethereal and atmospheric beat to it. Reminds me a lot of uh, uh, Cloud Rap beats. He's got a really great flow on this one. I love the I love my baby like Trump loves Putin line. Just another solid banger from Peggy. Check this one out when you get the chance. Looking forward to this new EP. And we got a new one from Chad Van Galen. Uh, if you don't know who Chad Van Galen is, he produced or I guess engineered one of my favorite albums of all time, uh, Women's Public Strain. And he has had a pretty interesting solo career. You know, I really enjoyed Diaper Island, which was kind of, it had like a similar sound to uh, a lot of the stuff that women put on Public Strain. Uh, but it was also like a folk album that was kind of sounded similar to like a Father John Misty or maybe like a Fleet Foxes. Uh, and you can really hear the indie folk in this one, especially in his vocals. He kind of has like that stereotypical indie folk singing style, not necessarily like FJM, uh, but a lot like the indie folk artists that have popularized, you know, that type of singing. Uh, this is a short one about a missing samurai sword. Seems like Chad is, is interested in collecting them. Maybe it's a new hobby that he's acquired uh, since quarantine has started. And this one has a pretty standard, you know, acoustic guitar progression, at least standard for indie folk. But the rhythm is provided by what sounds like pots and pans, uh, uh, 
being clanged, being struck together. And, and it reminds me of Fiona Apple's latest release uh, from last year. Um, so yeah, I, I like this one and I'm looking forward to another release from this guy because I really do love my indie folk and Chad Van Galen is a good artist to keep your eyes on. And the last thing I heard was this new Brent Fias track in collaboration with DJ Dahi and Tyler, the creator. This one's called Gravity. And this is a pretty great alternative R&B track. I am a fan of uh, Fias's singing here. Tyler has a wonderful guest spot on this track. And, and damn, the beat by Dahi slaps. You know, can't go wrong with drums. You can vibe to. Uh, Steve Lacey is also credited on this track. He provides the guitar and bass, and it's really psychedelic. It, it loops and it provides this nice dreamy bed. A great track, a wonderful collaboration. Looking forward to what Brent Vias has to is going to put out later this year. And so now moving on to an EP that I heard this year from The Alchemist. This one's called Carry the Fire. Alchemist had a pretty big year last year, producing a ton of albums. He had that one uh, with Freddie Gibbs. He produced a Bully James record. Now he's got a solo EP, which is really short, eight tracks, a, a total of nine minutes in length, and they all flow together and seamlessly transition into the next song. So it sounds like one big song, which is a decision that I like. And it follows a strange theme of connecting the music to the 1984 Olympics. And that's also another like really wacky decision that I love. Beats are uplifting. Uh, incorporates retro sounding synths that kind of reminds me of Boards of Canada. Uh, there's also a lot of orchestral strings and blaring trumpets. You know, I feel like I can't talk about individual songs because it really just sounds like one huge song. But if I was going to point to one track that I really like, it is The Flying Man because I love the eeriness of the synths. Again, very Boards of Canada like. You know, that moment stood out to me as a very memorable moment. Uh, but for the most part, it's not a particularly memorable project unless you like triumphant sounding horns and strings with unnerving sound effects added to it with a drum beat that resembles a hip hop beat. Definitely a creative idea. I just don't think it's executed that well. Only listen to it if you are obsessed with Alchemist. Otherwise, I think you could skip this one. Now moving on to the LPs. The first one I heard this week was On All Fours by Goat Girl. And I heard it because it was recommended to me. Uh, never heard of Goat Girl before, but I quickly learned that they are a neo-psych group with kind of like an indie and art rock edge. In fact, a lot of the songs tend to lean more toward the indie rock label, as most of the time the instrumental is driven by dreamy guitars and bass and drums, you know, really standard chord progressions throughout this record. They do get uh, psychedelic, but not very often. And when they do, it's like a little, you know, sprinkling, a dash of psychedelia added to their songs. Uh, but I don't mind this mixture. In fact, I think they do a really fine job with these structures and textures. For example, the track once again has the lulling chords and vocals, but it's propelled by a driving rhythm. It's sort of a mix of indie, rock, and even dream pop, but the instrumentation crescendos along with the vocals that are layered on top of each other, and it creates a very psychedelic climax that I... Uh, that, that stood out to me on first listen. I also really love the vocals from Pendleberry and Rose Davies because they sing in this apathetic yet playful way that is really reminiscent of Stereolab because they kind of popularized that singing style. Uh, it's not entirely original, but it fits their compositions very well. 
Sad Cowboy does a wonderful job at actually mixing these two genres as they play a guitar melody that is clearly supposed to mimic a country rock song. But then these quirky, vibrant synths come in and the vocals begin to reverberate and and other studio effects really bring out the psychedelic element in this song. My only gripe with this song is that it goes on for a bit too long and even morphs into this like club banger, but this is still one of the better songs on the track list. Jazz in the Supermarket is one of my favorite tracks. Uh, It's an instrumental piece that is more on the psychedelic side, looping, escalating synth chords, busy percussion section, and blaring trumpets define this track. And it's a delightful surprise early in the album. Really, really great song. The rest of the project features comfortable indie rock with a mixture of psychedelia uh, with very catchy vocals or introspective lyrics. In fact, if you want more of the personal lyricism on this record, I would check out a track like Anxiety Feels. Really love the lyrics on that track. Check this one out if you consider yourself a fan of these genres. And I might have to go check out the, the, the first Goat Girl album because I enjoyed myself with this one. Moving on. New Weezer album, OK Human. Apparently we're going to get Van Weezer later this year, but to hold us over, they released the surprise album. And from the sound of the lead single, All My Favorite Songs, the band was going in a surprising direction where they incorporated chamber pop into their usual rock, pop rock song structures. The single was driven by orchestral strings and drums with a small piano part. Uh, And for the most part, it was actually wonderfully composed. The issue that I had with that track was Rivers Cuomo himself. I don't think his vocals were particularly good. He sounded like his typical self, and I don't think it complemented the Baroque instrumentation very well. On top of that, the lyrics weren't great. It featured a uh, a millennial whoop, and it, it was very superficial. He wasn't really saying anything significant. And it's good that, you know, he is willing to explore the darker side of himself, you know, the introverted, the the self-deprecating Rivers Cuomo. But of course, we've kind of heard of this before, and it was done better on Pinkerton. So, and, you know, I don't really like to bring up Pinkerton and, and Blue Album when talking about Weezer, but it's kind of the best two albums that they've released. So when we hear something like this, you know, I got to bring up Pinkerton because that comparison is important when discussing the evolution of the band. Regardless, I wasn't necessarily looking forward to this full project, but now it's out. What do I think about it? I actually think this album is very well composed. Using chamber and Baroque instrumentation to craft beautiful poppy rock songs was a welcome change to their discography. I can't complain about a lot of these songs because they sound gorgeous. The Baroque piano breakdown on Alu Gobi was nice on the ears. The swooning strings of Grapes of Wrath along with the drums and Rivers' catchy vocals made for a fun pop song. And the slow build of the gentle strings on Numbers made for a surprisingly dramatic song. So I'm pretty happy with how the compositions sound. Really great work and something completely different for the band, which I applaud. Now the album starts to lose me whenever I dive into the lyrics and listen to Rivers' performances. And it's a shame because he tackles loneliness, introversion, and criticisms of technology on this album. But Rivers approaches this topic in such a direct way, and it's just very surface-level lyricism that it's not all that memorable. Grapes of Wrath is a great example of this, as I was not at all impressed with him talking about his quarantine reading list and naming these 
you know, classic books. Sure, it's catchy, but it comes off as, as really goofy and not in a good way. Mirror Image is a touching little ballad about his wife, but it is brief and it doesn't fit the narrative of the album. And the lyrics are stuff that we've kind of heard before. Uh, maybe not from Weezer, but from other artists. You know, just really surface level stuff. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to say that again, but I just wasn't all that interested with what he had to say, despite it being a Weezer song with a, a little more heart to it. Numbers has a tired narrative of people being discontent with their lives uh, and turning towards social media to seek validation. Another tired song topic and one that he doesn't really bring anything new to the table. And it also has an annoying na-na-na-na backing vocals in the chorus that I just couldn't stand. But not everything is, you know, terrible or average on this record. Uh, Bird with a Broken Wing was actually a moment where I was taken aback with his lyricism, and mainly because he adds a lot of depth to his personality. He uses this bird with a broken wing metaphor uh, to reflect himself, his inner struggles, you know, a bird with a broken wing is pretty useless and that's how he feels, but he is not giving up and he is not letting his pain, you know, defeat him or define him. Really surprising uh, song from Rivers, but uh, one that really calls back to those Pinkerton days. Overall, a very surprising album from Weezer. The instrumentation really carries this album, uh, but the lyrics fall a bit flat sometimes, but still a lot better than uh, Weezer's other albums. Now let's get to the big one this week, Mad Lib, Sound Ancestors, collaboration with Fortet. Now, Mad Lib needs no introduction. He's a legendary hip-hop producer. He has a ton of legendary projects under his belt, whether it be solo projects or collab albums. If you know hip-hop, you know Mad Lib. Uh, but Fortet sounded like an interesting partner for this project, especially since... I didn't really hear anything that alluded to his presence, uh, his touch on the album. If you don't know, Fortet is an electronic IDM artist. Uh, but it turns out that Kieran Hebden, the man behind Fortet, did some editing and mastering and most likely created the album's track list. So nothing too significant, but Madlib and Fortet has a nice ring to it. Uh, Madtet, there you go. Uh, but judging from the singles, this was going to be a spiritual and jazzy atmospheric boom bappy project which is nothing too wacky in terms of uh, madlib's production style you know road of the lonely has this clean snare loop with a sample of the ethnics song lost in a lonely world but of course madlib and all his genius creates this soothing psychedelic track that and he loops the singer's vocals and stretches it out to create this low drone that gives the song its dreamlike quality this is probably one of the more normal sounding madlib tracks on the project whereas traps like hop rock and dirt knock take his production style to a whole new level hop rock has these eerie vocal samples interwoven with a groovy guitar riff uh, claps and a beat and people might not like dirt knock because it's not an immediate listen but that's why i love it Almost everything about this track is muted from the female vocals to the subtle clicking of the guitar chords. The only things that sound as they should be is the bass guitar and the drums. And at some point, I thought that these were mixed higher than the rest of the parts here. But the vocals and guitars are just so quiet that it sounds like the other parts are mixed higher. But in just three tracks, Madlib was able to craft this otherworldly sound. So that's why I was really looking forward to this project. And Madlib delivers with a, a very dreamy and hallucinogenic listen. 
The Call intros the album, and it's a very psychedelic track as vocals are straight out of a psych rock band from the 70s or 80s. At least that's what they sound like. The bass guitar is heavy. You can really feel the vibration. And a guitar squawks out the chords and gives this track a larger-than-life feel to it. And that's why I really love it. Of course, the Loot Digger is going to pull some esoteric samples on us, which he does on Loose Goose. He samples two clarinet. I think, melodies from a Ronaldo and the Loaf song, and I love how it's juxtaposed with a sample of Snoop Dogg saying, Fo shizzle drizzle. It's extremely goofy in a good way, but it's the kind of creativity that I seek in hip-hop beats, and it's just so mad lib to sample both a huge artist like Snoop Dogg and Ronaldo and the Loaf, which is a group that I've never heard of before. On the other hand, The title track combines African rhythms with jazzy woodwinds and an upright bass part and creates an abstract and spiritual listening experience that only Madlib could have crafted. There's also some Latin strings in the 13th track, a cartoony vibe from the 10th track. The influences are all over the place. The mood varies from song to song. You know, it could go from a very atmospheric and calming track to an eerie and energetic one. Songs could go from subtle to imposing at a drop of a hat. It's a project that doesn't sit still, and it's something that you know I really look forward to in a, in a Madlib project, or at least a project from a creative mind like Madlib. The sound design is off the charts as well, but I wouldn't expect any less from Madlib. Just listen to the call again, a track that makes you know me feel very small. He is so precise in his craft, and I I can't just be mad at this because it's a really exciting listen. Although the only problem that I have with this album is the ending as it is a bit weak the song itself is very fun but i don't think it works as a good closer but for the most part i think hip-hop heads will find something to love about this album something to latch onto. for me it's the first album of the year that i really love so go check out sound ancestors when you get the chance and that does it for this past week in music i'm gonna take a little break but when we come back going to talk about Talking Heads. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back to Sound Encounters. Before the break, I said I was going to talk about Talking Heads, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about Talking Heads and you are going to listen with the ears on your head. I've been wanting to talk about this band for a while now, but I needed to familiarize myself with uh, releases that I haven't heard and re-listen to albums that I've heard dozens of times uh, just to re-familiarize myself with them. But even before I decided that I was going to talk about them for the show, uh, I had been really on a Talking Heads kick their music is just so creative that I I just keep I, I keep wanting to come back to them and relive the experience of their innovative work. And I thought, you know, while I have this show, I could also talk about this band who I, after listening to their entire discography, I can now consider them one of my favorite bands, at least rock groups of all time. Now, before I get into the nitty gritty of their discography, I just, if, if you haven't heard a guide from me yet, this is normally how they go. I will talk about uh, some background, 
then I will cover their discography from their first release to their last release. And then after that, I will provide my own listening order for the band. What you should listen to first, and then how you should work your way through their discography. Um, although they're not, they don't have like a huge discography, just eight studio LPs, but I will still provide a listening order if you're interested. And with that out of the way, let's talk about Talking Heads. The music world is filled with enigmatic characters, but Talking Heads might be at the top of oddball rock groups. From the beginning of their career, it was very evident they were a different kind of punk act. They didn't even like to be labeled as punk. They were kind of uh, founders of the new wave scene. Their high energy and clean-cut stage performance, frontman David Burns' eccentric vocal delivery, and their unique blends of rock and punk with funk and African polyrhythms made them stand out during an era of pretty much straightforward pop, rock, R&B, and synth pop. The band was born when guitarist and vocalist David Byrne met drummer Chris Franz in 1973 at Rhode Island School of Design. They had their own band named The Artistics for a short time before they called it quits. Then in 1974, the duo, along with Franz's girlfriend, Tina Weymouth, decided to move to New York to focus on creating music. When they couldn't find a bassist, Weymouth stepped up to the plate, although it took a couple of years, I think two years, uh, before she finally decided to uh, learn bass guitar. And Talking Heads was born. In 75, they landed a legendary gig at CBGB's where they opened for the Ramones. Just imagine being one of the people seeing them open for, for one of the most iconic punk groups ever. That's like just, that's just witnessing rock history. And lucky for them, co-founder of Sire Records, Seymour Stein, witnessed that moment. And in 1976, they were signed on to Sire Records. And the following year, they added keyboardist and guitarist Jerry Harrison, formerly of Modern Lovers, to the lineup. In 1977, they recorded their first album, Talking Heads, 77, and our journey begins here. Now, as far as debut records go, this has to be one of my favorites. This album perfectly introduces listeners to the type of frontman David Byrne is and his idiosyncratic vocal delivery. And a lot of his lyrics refer to social anxiety you know, trying to get along with people um, and his self-esteem and his confidence. And while he is singing about these things, his voice tends to be jerky and you get a sense of like discomfort because the way that he sings is so unconventional, at least for rock. Just take a listen to Happy Day and you'll see what I mean. He emphasizes words. He over-exaggerates and this could cause some like vocal whiplash, especially on this song. But I love it. The quirkiness of his delivery makes him and the band stand out so much more. Other vocal highlights include Don't Worry About the Government, where Byrne achieves this shrill and almost whiny singing style while he's satirizing destructive modern living. And on Who Is It, his skittery and almost breathless singing reflects the jumpy guitars. While Byrne's singing is unorthodox, it is catchy, and you will sing along to it. This LP also does a fantastic job at demonstrating the musicality of the band. The opening track, Uh Oh, Love Comes to Town, is a funky rock song supported by Weymouth's incredible bass playing and Franz's steel pan drums. While it plays a small role in the song, the use of the steel pan informs us that the band takes inspiration from the music of other cultures and is willing to incorporate it into their brand of punk or new wave. 
I also can't talk about this song without mentioning Burns' lyrics as his cockiness about love and why it makes people lose their minds is fascinating, especially after listening to the follow-up songs where he isn't so confident. Then on first week, last week, Carefree, the band mixes marimba and a saxophone with muted guitars. Now the band would go on to experiment with different genres and styles later on in their career. Uh, but hearing something like this or Uh Oh Love Comes to Town is refreshing among post-punk bands that, you know, use angular guitars. It also helps that David is just so David, too. Their first popular single would come in the second-to-last track, Psycho Killer. This track is about the inner thoughts about a serial killer, uh, allegedly inspired by Norman Bates. David sings in French on the chorus and a bit more on the bridge later on in the track to sort of emphasize a dialogue or I think it was like a, a sudden shift in psyche. It has an ominous bass beat that clashes with bright and jagged guitar chords. It's a miracle that this ended up being one of the most popular songs in the band's career, but I think it just goes to show that there was an appreciation for their quirkiness. Psycho Killer is a fantastic track and I'm glad it was able to turn some heads, pun intended? and give this fantastic album some attention. And attract some attention it did, because after the release of 77, musician and producer Brian Eno wanted to produce the band's next album, and that he did. In fact, this is a the beginning of a trilogy of albums where Eno is working in collaboration with the band and producing their material. Eno, I think, is able to elevate and the, the performances of Byrne, Franz, Weymouth, and Harrison, and the end result is a refined version of their previous record, and thus more songs about buildings and food was released in 1978. We hear more of the dance punk that made them popular on songs like The Good Thing and Found a Job, but with Eno now in the mix, we can hear talking heads in a more precise and meticulous light. The more I listen to The Good Thing, the more I appreciate it for its careful construction. You know, there's never a dull moment on this song. The verses are gentle and calm, and the chorus suddenly switches it up for a slightly faster tempo. Burns' vocals are a tad more anxious as well, and we hear backing vocals that make the chorus feel more complete. And the song switches between these two different tempos and moods. And I don't know about you guys, but it keeps me engaged. Found a Job is interesting because... There are added effects that make the song unnerving, and it takes the band's quirkiness to a whole new level. The song is about a couple who is inspired to make a television show after watching a particularly horrible one. This is accompanied by a twitchy guitar melody, and if it weren't for the unsettling effect during the chorus, this would be a perfectly normal talking head song. Well, at least normal for the band. But it's that production decision that Eno makes that, again, elevates the material, and there are other examples of this throughout the album. I really love the psychedelic touch on Warning Sign because it gives the bass-heavy song a nightmarish quality to it that I think is very fitting for its lyrics. And while it is annoying that David's vocals seem to be mixed lower than the dreamy and ominous instrumentation on Artists Only, I give it a slight pass because I love the atmosphere that the music creates. The band also produced another hit. This time it was a cover of Al Green's Take Me to the River. While we have a pretty groovy rhythm section on the track, the highlight and the focus is the organ, as it has a surprisingly calming vibe to it after all the anxiety of the rest of the album. It was nice to hear a song like this at the end of the track list, again, after just how anxious it feels, like the rest of the album feels. While Eno certainly highlighted some of the band's best qualities on more songs, 
ultimately, I think it was the weakest of the three Eno-produced albums, as what was to follow was more adventurous and experimental than this record. Still, it is an essential album in their discography that highlights the band's creative growth. A year later, the band released their third full-length LP, Fear of Music. While their growth between the first two albums was subtle, their evolution between the releases of more songs to this LP is like night and day. The album feels darker and, and embraces more of the post-punk tropes, the nervous energy it is channeled in a way that makes me feel even more uneasy. Lyrics are getting more indecipherable as well, and effects continue to be frightening, almost hellish. You won't notice the change right away as the opener Izembra treats us to polyrhythms, funky bass, minimal repetition, and Dada is chanting. For the most part, if you've been listening to their discography in order, this is pretty normal for the band. They introduce some new elements into the mix, well, new in the context of the band's musical palette, but we should be used to this. The lyrics have gotten more abstract, you know, the band is pulling from Dadaism, as I said, but they are still able to create a funky groove with high energy. I should also say that this song is one of my favorite openers of all time, so I have nothing bad to say about Izembra. Things are quickly flipped on their head though, in the following track, Mind, guitar parts are constantly repeated and, and shifting so we have that repetition again, and continual listens have made me appreciate it more. The real highlights of this song though are the production and David himself. Burnt sounds almost sinister here, and Eno's sound design brings that out as we get odd effects spliced throughout the song. The way David sings along with Eno's production really reminds me of Bowie's Berlin Trilogy, which Eno also produced, and maybe it's just me, but I, I get that vibe. To make it even weirder, Byrne adds these strange noises at the end of his lines, and he repeats words, but in a twisted and evil way. Continuing this trend, you know, Cities is an animalistic frenzy with David losing control as the song progresses. The repeated driving guitars and the bright keyboards clash with Byrne's wild performance so well. It feels really claustrophobic, and it's even more impressive given how minimal the guitar and piano parts are. It's everything in conjunction, all, you know, all the melodies and rhythms that give a new meaning to Talking Heads' anxiety, and it's great. If the last album had elements of psychedelia, then this one has atmosphere worked into its songs. The closing track, Drugs, operates in this open space where the drums, guitars, and a keyboard that sounds like an organ are free to roam and breathe. It's quite the contrast compared to a song like Cities. One of my favorite things about Drugs is how the guitar reverberates. It gives the song an ethereal quality to it when the rest of the song feels so uncertain. There is so still some darker aspects to this track. Eno adds effects throughout the song and to David's vocals to make it sound more menacing and a bit more psychedelic. It's a very interesting closer and an experiment that I think worked really well in their favor. Another song that contains this atmospheric element is Heaven. For the most part, it's a standard rock chord progression with mournful keys, but what makes this song atmospheric is David's vocals getting the reverb treatment this time. There's a lot of passion in his delivery on the chorus, and hearing him echo out is absolutely beautiful. Probably the more popular song on this album is the single Life During Wartime, and it's easy to see why with its upbeat synths and funky guitar and bass. We also get conga parts on this track and David's contagious energy. 
I can't help but sing along to this ain't no party, this ain't no disco, this ain't no fooling around. And this song is even better during live performances. Just, you know, they have a couple of live albums. So try to find, you know, live during wartime, during a, a you know, a live performance. Or, but this is still a very amazing version. And it is uh, carried by David's energy and the very, you know, funky synths. Fear Music is a great second act to the Eno Heads collaboration projects that introduces new themes and experiments to the band. But the best is yet to come as their fourth album, Remain in Light, would be a game changer. Now, I did cover this album during the What is New Wave feature, so if you've heard that episode, I'll probably be repeating myself here, but I have to talk about it. If the last three albums put Talking Heads on the map, then this one immortalized them in rock history forever. So this is the last Talking Heads album that Eno produced, and it almost didn't happen as Eno didn't want to do it. He was very reluctant on working with them again, but after hearing instrumental demo tapes, he was eager to work with them for a third time. And at this point during the band's life cycle, they wanted to change things up as to dispel any notion that this was Burns' band. You know, it wasn't just Burns' band. You know, Franz, Weymouth, and Harrison are talented musicians, and they wanted their impact felt as well. Harrison had just produced an album for soul singer Nona Hendrix, and Franz and Weymouth were tired of relying on Burn to make the music. They didn't want to be just a backup band, and they wanted to write songs together as a quartet. And so when Eno joined the band at the studio in the Bahamas, they decided that they were going to make music in a communal African way and start meshing individual parts as polyrhythms. And so while listening to these songs, instruments can start to feel jumbled together for no reason, and it makes the listening experience overwhelming at first, but the more you listen to it, the more you are able to appreciate what they are doing here, and you can start to hear the parts a bit better. The opening track, Born Under Punches, The Heat Goes On, has the bass, electronic effects, percussion parts, and guitar all clashing together, and they are far from producing similar melodies and rhythms. On top of that, Burns' lyrics are a bit odd, as it's almost nonsensical. It kind of creates a message, and of course, he's shouting, so he's in your face too. I do find these lyrics interesting as it discusses oppressed workers and the government stealing labor from workers, as evident from Byrne saying, you know, his hands are the hands of a government man. He goes into this a bit more as the song progresses, but he becomes a bit more abstract as he's only speaking in short phrases while multiple people start chanting and the heat goes on. This chanting does a fantastic job at being hypnotic and exciting despite it not really being that high energy. This song with this repeated chanting and its individual parts that repeat themselves also give us a good idea of the looping method that the band and Eno were experimenting with. So during these songs, while you're listening to these songs, you will hear parts being looped over and over again and repeated over and over again. And that's just one of the methods that they used for creating the music on this album. The Great Curve has to be one of my favorite Talking Head songs ever. You can really hear the African influence on this one with the heart-pounding skin drum rhythms and the choral chanting. Along with this, the band repeats this post-punk new wave-inspired guitar part that rings out. I love how wild the guitars get too because it climbs and wails and it's very atonal sounding. And the added horn section playing in the background is a nice addition that's very punchy and makes the song feel more lively, although it is already an energetic song. 
It's another track that could be overwhelming due to how stimulating it is. And man, it's just a great one. One that I just keep returning to over and over again. House in Motion is one of the funkier tracks here with its dirty bass line and we hear the horns get to shine, although for most of the track it is kind of quiet. But, but there is a killer dissonant trumpet solo around midway through the track, and it's one of my favorite elements of this track. I think the call and response vocals of the song make it a bit more dynamic as well, and the fact that the guitars are playing this nervous rhythm is just so good and so talking heads. The band utilizes atmosphere again on a listening wind as airy synth effects and Burns' elongated way of singing make it sound very eerie. And of course, we can't talk about this album without bringing up one of the band's most popular songs, Once in a Lifetime. Compared to the other songs on this album, this one is relatively simple with its shimmering electronics and jagged bassline doing all the work here. The percussion isn't all that unorthodox, but the guitar produces this searing drone at the end. The lyrics refer to time either passing too quickly or being stagnant, and we get that classic David Byrne anxiety as he tries to grasp the concept of time, and, and he comments on how dull life can be. One of my favorite Talking Heads tracks, and it comes with a pretty bizarre music video, which I recommend that you go check that out. It really feels like this album was a culmination of everything the Heads did up until this point. You know, uh, punk polyrhythms, experimentation, and catchy songs all mixed together. And this is like the best version of those types of elements in a Talking Heads album. And the result was an extremely transformative piece of work. This was their defining moment, and it truly cemented them as one of the most significant rock acts of all time. And I just can't help but like I, I there's nothing i really want to criticize about this album it's just so amazing and and god i need to buy this record on vinyl when i get the chance <laughs> after the release of remaining light and a very extensive tour they took a three-year hiatus which it was deserved they were pumping out four albums in four years and in that short amount of time they gained a lot of attention they gained a lot of critical acclaim but they, they, they weren't quiet as Byrne teamed up with Eno once again in 81 to release My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. Franz and Weymouth recorded an album with Tom Top Club and Harrison was producing during the hiatus. Talking Heads did get back together though in 1983 as they released their fifth full-length LP, Speaking in Tongues. This album was sort of a return to form for the band as the music on this thing was more focused on danceable synth grooves without all of the intricate polyrhythms that defined the band. At least, you know, defined the last three albums, or the very least, and remain in light. And it's also a new chapter for them as their songwriting complemented a poppier structure. And we only need to turn to the single Burning Down the House to see what this pop song approach earned them. Because this single earned them their first top 10 hit, and if that wasn't enough, this album went two times platinum and was pretty much their commercial breakthrough. After four albums, three of them being produced with Brian Eno, they were finally getting mainstream recognition. And what an album to go platinum. Uh, now, this is nowhere near my favorite record of theirs, but I will admit, the songwriting is tight, the rhythms are groovy, the melodies are infectious. Following Remain in Light is a tough job, but they... Just do a lot of things right on this album that is hard to dislike it. 
let's go back and take a look at Burning Down the House because this is a phenomenal and fun intro that does a wonderful job at letting us know what kind of album this is. Songs lean heavily in the synth-funk direction as the rhythm section is composed of these funky synths that blare and ring out throughout the song. I love how the band mixes it up with tribal drumming that is no doubt inspired from their love of world music. And we still have that trademark talking heads anxiety as the guitars stutter and burn whales burning down the house. Another danceable groove is found on Girlfriend is Better, the third track. The bubbling bass, the clapping, and the eccentric synths fits the synth funk sound of this album perfectly. It's already an energetic sound, but the irresistibly catchy vocals electrifies this song. I think there's even an accordion part playing during the chorus, and the band doesn't shy away from experimentation as halfway through the song, the synths create this cold and callous drone. The run from Girlfriend is Better to Swamp is incredible too. You know, Slippery People mixes African percussion with beeping synths and gospel choral chants. I'm a simple man, you know, whenever Talking Heads introduces a choral chant in their song, I can't help but automatically love it. I Get Wild, Wild Gravity proves the Heads' ability to make a great reggae track, and Burns' vocal delivery on the chorus has to be one of my favorite performances from him on the record. I get wild, you know, he's elongating his words again. And Swamp is a dark and hallucinogenic song with amazing production and effects and another reggae-inspired melody, this time coming from the guitars. This is another fantastic performance from Byrne as he's having fun with it and as he sounds both sinister and playful. We actually do get some polyrhythms on this album as Pull Up The Roots offers multiple percussion rhythms, dirty synths, and a rhythm guitar. I love how the song builds with more energy, another track with electrifying energy. By far one of their most popular songs in their discography is This Must Be The Place Naive Melody, the closing track on this album. And it's not difficult to see why. We have a very charming and delicate melody comprised of guitars, synths, bass, and drums, and David Byrne's sweet and touching lyrics of love. And I really love the way the lyrics are written because it is written with no narrative, but the phrases, the lines that David writes is meant to elicit an emotional reaction. In that way, David said that this is probably his most honest love song that he's ever written. My favorite lines are in verse two. Home is where I want to be, but I guess I'm already there. I come home, she's lifted up her wings. I guess that this must be the place. There's a lot of imagery that comes to mind and a person in my life comes to mind when I hear this. So I kind of see why David wrote this song the way that he did. Um, but that being said, I'm curious to hear what is your favorite line on this track. One last thing to mention is the reason why this music sounds so simple, hence the naive melody in the title, is because Weymouth and Burns switched roles when recording this song. Weymouth played the guitar, David played the keyboards, even though Weymouth is the bassist and David usually plays guitar. I thought this was just a product of their more accessible pop songwriting, but really it's just that they weren't as confident or they feel out of place when recording this song. Uh, and I think that's cute. I think it really adds to the simplicity of this track. So yeah, Speaking in Tongues is an important stepping stone for the band after the Eno era and then certainly inspired the following three albums. Two years later, the band released their sixth studio album, Little Creatures. The band delves further into the pop rock ethos as songwriting becomes even more straightforward and catchy. 
and the identity of the band is shifting ever so slightly to maintain a more manageable character. David is less eccentric, although he definitely shines here and there on this album. The band is losing its touch on their world music influences as they start to pull from country music. Like, listen to a song like Creatures of Love, because it's a significant departure from the funky and anxious talking heads. Um, it is a fun country ditty, though. David does his best impression of a country singer. Kind of reminds me of Michael Jura from Swans, in a way. Maybe that's just me. Um, and the addition of the steel guitar that was introduced on the previous song, Give Me Back My Name, also adds to that country feel. And this is a song about human nature and how we are creatures of love and empathy. And as as time has progressed, David has become more in tune with his emotions, whereas, you know, in the past he was more nervous and callous. Going back to Give Me Back My Name, there is still that anxiety. It's just buried underneath the rest of the instrumentation as angular guitars create a tense feeling throughout the track. Well, the lyrics don't necessarily reflect that in steel guitar and the friendly sing-along vocals also detract from that anxious feeling, their punk origins still peek through to craft that familiar, uneasy feeling. But then we have tracks like And She Was and Perfect World, which are both just rays of sunshine. The guitars, keyboards, and saxophones are bright and jubilant on And She Was, and I even love the vocal harmony on the chorus and the traditional rock solo at the very end. The lyrics are about a girl who takes acid, and I recommend the music video for this one, which you can find on YouTube, because it's a very well-made video that frames things in the girl's view as she flies over her neighborhood going past houses and factories. And then Perfect World is a catchy as hell. It's a poppy new wave track with keyboard melodies that really pops, and the guitar and vocal harmonies are just so lush. I find it impossible to not sing along to the chorus. And again, we have more of that optimistic David Byrne that would paint a lot of the songs in the back half of the Heads' career. You can call it cheesy. You can call it uninventive. But I can't help myself. This is just fun pop rock. And there ain't nothing wrong with that. Same thing with Walk It Down. That track is a good time all around with an infectious chorus. Well, actually, that song has a gospel choir. So I, you know, I really love it. Add the cheery organs and you got a recipe for another great track. Before I get to the really famous song on this project, I gotta talk about the penultimate track, Television Man, as it has a fanfare of call and response vocals, skin drum rhythms, and horns. It's a very lively track and kind of serves as a sequel to Found a Job off of more songs, as the lyrics kind of explain what happens when Bob and Judy don't express their creative ideas. They become passive and complicit and and their ideas don't shine their creativity doesn't shine in a way i guess it's a really dark uh track um for <laughs> an album like this but that isn't even the darkest track on the album we get to road to nowhere it has a very happy vibe to it with its gospel choral intro galloping rhythms joyful keys and a cheery accordion to match however the lyrics on this one are, are kind of dark as it's in an analogy to death, as he talks about how we are all on the road to nowhere. But it kind of doesn't matter when everyone is singing, we're on the road to nowhere, and it's really, like, happy. Um, really love that juxtaposition, though. While light on the funk and the world music, this is still a fun album with catchy and upbeat melodies. And some of my favorite Talking Head songs are on this thing. I think it's really underrated and probably my second favorite album on the back half of their discography. On to album number seven, True Stories, released in 1986. 
Now, I won't lie. This one is a bit of a weird one, which is saying a lot for a band like this. But what makes this so strange is how average it is. David Byrne wrote this album to accompany the 1980 film that he wrote and directed of the same name. So in a way, this album is a soundtrack, and it's even more pop rock than the last one. I think to fit the scenes in the movie, which I don't know, I haven't really seen yet. Uh, But it's arguably the most accessible album of theirs. This is evident from the popular single off of this album, Wild Wild Life, as it has punchy guitar melody, a straightforward rhythm, and energetic vocals from both Byrne and the backup singers. No complex rhythms to be found, none of the flair and creativeness of incorporating music from different cultures, and of course, they were kind of alluding to that or teasing this more conventional sound in the last album, but here it's, it's pretty much we are a pop rock band now. The opening track, Love for Sale, is the same. Vigorous and distorted guitar riff kind of make up the main melody of that track. No funk whatsoever. Uh, The bass is kind of buried underneath the boisterous guitar and drums, which is a shame because I do love the funkier elements of their music. At least David is still sticking to his eccentric singing style. He's straining his voice, he's passionate, and it's appropriate here as he's singing about love. His vocals were a highlight on Wild Wildlife too, as he was straining his voice there, and he definitely stands out among the rest of the instrumentation. The track People Like Us incorporates that country influence of the last album as the steel guitar makes a return, and we even hear a fiddle. It's a song made for a hoedown. It's a touching song as the lyrics channel a more emotional and vulnerable narrative. Lyrics like the one on this album really defined the last four albums of the band, and I'm glad that it was consistent and let us view the band in a different light. David vocals are really tame on this one. He doesn't do anything wild or go off the rails on this one. It's a calm little country ditty that definitely won't be for everyone, especially if you find their earlier works more compelling. But I appreciate what David was doing on here. Papa Legbata has some world influence, uh, just a touch of world influence as it incorporates a kind of Cajun percussion. Uh, More gospel choral vocals are on puzzling evidence, possibly my favorite track on the album. And Dream Operator was a huge surprise. It's it's a track with a lulling and dreamy atmosphere, especially with the meandering, jangly guitar and keyboards. And David vocals are also calming here. The album also features Radiohead, the song that inspired the name for one of the most iconic contemporary art rock bands. So there's that. While it's not their most cutting-edge release, I still find myself enjoying a lot of the moments on True Stories. You know, the funk and the complex rhythms are certainly missed, but you have to admit, David is really good at crafting poppy and touching melodies. And at last, we arrive to the last album that they released, Naked, in 1988. This one marked the return of incorporating influences from different cultures. This time around, David was fascinated with Latin pop and salsa, and because of that, We get a lot of Latin rhythms, which make for danceable rhythms without, you know, solely relying on funk or Afrobeat. Um, But we also get a very confused album, I feel, because about midway through the album, we hear an industrial track, and then we hear more conventional rock songs. We'll get to that, because I want to talk about the opening track, Blind, which is a perfect opening, as it does a wonderful job at introducing this new sound. The Latin rhythms I was talking about uh, and exaggerated horn sections blast through your speakers as soon as you hit play. I've always been a fan of the congas, and they sound gorgeous here. 
Weymouth's bass playing isn't hidden this time around, and it's a welcome uh, addition, as it sounds like Talking Heads again, and it brings back that funk element. If I'm being completely honest, David's vocal performance is probably the weakest part of the track, as his annoying uh, vocals of him just repeating blind, 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 blind is just, it's, it's not my thing. But at least he's back to his wacky and wild performances again, so that's a plus. Mr. Jones features Latin strumming, woodblocks, congas, and a shaker, and another lively horn section. David is stringing his voice once again, making for another idiosyncratic performance from him. Totally Nude is catchy and danceable as it has an irresistible salsa rhythm accompanied by steel guitar melody, and I think it has probably the catchiest vocals on the album. Then we get to that more rock-sounding song in the Democratic Circus, but I do like it for the dramatic buildup of guitars as they are wailing and they build and, again, just sound really dramatic and, and, and it's playing it up. And while it is more rock than Latin, there is still a conga rhythm section. I think this is David's best performance on the album as he goes full manic on this one and, and it really complements the drama of the guitars. Then we get to the industrial track on this one, The Fact of Life, as it features dark and harsh synths, um, and it's just really jarring to hear this kind of track in an album that I thought was going to be solely reliant on Latin influences. Um, the, 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 David's lyrics aren't that great on this one either, and there's another track on here... Um, I'm pretty sure it was either Big Daddy or Mommy Daddy and I um, that I was just like, oh man, I'm not enjoying this th these lyrics. Like, David, you could do so much better. And, you know, as much as I love how they incorporate world music into their, mu their, their music, um, I feel like there's no real spin on the Latin pop and salsa uh, influence. It, it just sounds like they're trying to replicate it, which is usually not what they do you know especially like for something like remain in light like they were definitely injecting their own personality into those rhythms those melodies but it kind of falls flat here so a, a very confusing record as i stated before but i guess it's a little interesting to hear the the, the band's the last moments in terms of like studio recording and then after that, they went on hiatus the following year. They went their separate ways. David recorded more solo albums. You know, Tina and Chris went back to Tom Tom Club. I'm pretty sure Harrison was producing. Uh, and then they officially disbanded in 1991. And that was Talking Heads, all eight of their studio LPs. Now we can get to the listening order, um, which is kind of like unique because this is one of the very few times where I'll say... You can listen to these tracks in order. Things only get stranger as you progress through their discography, and I guess a little more accessible. But you know, you aren't diving headfirst into into some really weird shit if you just listen to seventy seven first. But regardless, if you want to, if you don't want to um, listen to them in order, I have my listening order. Um, I think the first two albums you should listen to are "Remain in Light" and "Speaking in Tongues." These. Well, Remain in Light is critically acclaimed, it's creative, it's, I think, the band's artistic peak, and then Speaking in Tongues is their mainstream success. 
So listening to these albums back to back is a really good indicator of what you're going to listen to um, for the rest of their discography. Now, if you find yourself favoring Remain in Light and you want more funk or art rock or just want to finish the Eno trilogy, then you can listen to 77 more songs about buildings and food and fear of music. And you can kind of just listen to them in any order. Um, but if you want more pop, listen to Little Creatures, True Stories, and Naked. Um, regardless of what you choose first, like if you want to do pop first and then move on to the Eno trilogy in 77, I would recommend you just, you keep a naked for last. <laughs> like listen to Little Creatures and True Stories and then go back and listen to their earlier stuff and then listen to Naked. I think Naked should be the last album that you should hear in their discography after listening to the, the genius of their other albums. Um, I just think that, you know, it's funny because I don't think they have a weak album. Naked is their weakest album, but it's not terrible. There there are still a lot of catchy songs on that one. Uh, I didn't mention nothing about Flowers, but that's a really good track on Naked. But I, I just think that you should listen to their more creative stuff, their more popular stuff before diving into Naked. Like if like, you know, again, Little Creatures, True Stories, Naked, and then moving on to uh, the Eno trilogy. But just, just hold off on Naked. You're, you're not going to miss anything from listening to Naked first or, or listening to Naked last, I should say. But again, not completely horrible. And I think that's why I love Talking Heads so much. Like, despite their lowest point, they still made interesting and fun music that I love to listen to. I'm curious to hear after you listen to all their albums or if you're familiar with the band already what your favorite album is because mine has switched so many times from I think 77 was my favorite for the longest time then it switched to fear of music and then now I think it's remain in light remain in light is pretty fucking good and even now that I listen to it more I'm starting to appreciate speaking in tongues more than I originally did um, so I, I am curious to hear what your favorite Talking Heads album is. You can let me know on Twitter and Instagram or anchor.fm forward slash sound encounters. Send me a voice message. There's a link in the podcast description. I want to know what your favorite Talking Heads album is so we can continue this Talking Heads discussion. And that does it for this week of Sound Encounters. Make sure to stay tuned for another exciting installment next week. I think that next week we are going to celebrate the 10th anniversary of a mixtape. So you have that to look forward to. In the meantime, you can follow the Sound Encounters Twitter and Instagram pages with the handle at Sound Encounters. I post updates and share music memes on those accounts and I interact with the lovely people who give my posts a like and a comment. You can also send me a voice message through Anchor to recommend a topic I should talk about, or you could give me some feedback. And if you do, I'll give you a shout out on the show. Just go to anchor.fm forward slash sound encounters or soundencounters.com or follow the link in the podcast description to send your message. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and that too could be featured in an upcoming episode. All right, that about wraps it up. Rock on music explorers. I'll see you next week. Ciao.